Hello, uh, this is Grant Bartley. You're listening to the Philosophy Now radio show on Resonance FM. Today we've, we're talking about the thoughts of Friedrich Nietzsche, that famous German anti-Christian polemical philosopher. Uh, I have with me Ken Geems, who's a professor of philosophy at Birkbeck. He was also a professor at Yale, and he has a research interest in Nietzsche. Um, so we're just going to get straight into it. And uh, I'm going to ask you, Ken, to start with, who is Friedrich Nietzsche and why is he important for Western cultural philosophy? Well, as you said, Friedrich Nietzsche is a German philosopher, but what he's really most famous for and is what he's most known as is the philosopher of the death of God. Okay. And this makes him really, really central, important for our times, because he's the philosopher who really talks about a certain collapse of values that comes with a collapse of belief in Christian values, uh-huh. or at least in religious values. And in some sense, we often think of him as the philosopher of nihilism. Uh-huh. Nihilism is the idea that there are no ultimate values, and we become disoriented from it. And uh-huh. I'd like to begin with a reading of a passage, because sure. this is one of the most famous parts from Nietzsche. It's Gay Science 125, and it's called The Madman. Okay. And it's very interesting that it's a madman who delivered this kind of little mini-sermon. All right. This will be the hardest part of the program for me because I'm a very bad reader of texts. Okay. The madman. Have you not heard of that madman who lit a lantern in the bright morning hours, ran to the marketplace and cried incessantly, I seek God, I seek God. As many of those who did not believe in God were standing around just then, he provoked much laughter. Has he got lost? Questioned one. Did he lose his way like a child? Questioned another. Or is he hiding? Is he afraid of us? Has he gone on a voyage? Emigrated? Thus they yelled and laughed. The madman jumped into their midst and pierced them with his eyes. Whither is God? he cried. I will tell you. We have killed him, you and I. All of us are his murderers. But how did we do this? How could we drink up the sea? Who gave us the sponge to wipe away the entire horizon? What were we doing when we unchained this earth from its sun? Whither is it moving now? Whither are we moving? Away from all suns? Are we not plunging continually, backward, sideward, forward, in all directions? Is there still any up or down? Are we not straying as through an infinite nothing? Do we not feel the breath of empty space? Has it not become colder? Is night continually closing in on us? Do we not need to light lanterns in the morning? Do we hear nothing as yet of the noise of the grave diggers who are burying God? Do we smell nothing as yet of the divine decomposition? Gods too decompose. God is dead. God remains dead. And we have killed him. How shall we comfort ourselves, the murderers of all murderers? What was holiest and mightiest of all that the world has yet owned has bled to death under our knives. Who will wipe this blood off us? What water is there for us to clean ourselves? What festivals of atonement? What sacred games shall we have to invent? Is not the greatness of this deed too great for us? Must we ourselves not become gods, simply to appear worthy of it? There has never been a greater deed, and whoever is born after us for the sake of this deed, he will belong to a higher history than all hitherto. Here the madman fell silent and looked again at his listeners, and they too were silent and stared at him in astonishment. At last he threw his lantern on the ground, and it broke into pieces and went out. I have come too early, he said, and then, my time is not yet. This tremendous event is still on its way, still wandering. It has not yet reached the ears of men. 
Lightning and thunder require time. The light of the stars requires time. Deeds, though done, still require time to be seen and heard. This deed is still more distant from them than the most distant stars. And yet they have done it themselves. Glad yeah. to get through that. That's great, isn't it? I mean, that gives a, a real feeling of uh, Nietzsche's style and why he's really such a popular philosopher because of his bombastic and very visual style. But I was thinking while you were reading that, he, Nietzsche is famous for proclaiming the death of God, but surely the idea of the death of God didn't originate with him. So um, in that sense, what did he add to okay. the debate? When he, when he starts that death of God uh, routine, you'll notice that people are laughing at him. They're like the village atheists uh-huh. and saying, has he emigrated? They're making a big joke. Uh-huh. And Nietzsche's point is he's addressing people who already are non-believers. But his real central point is we have not appreciated what the death of God means. So you're absolutely The implications right. of it is what he's working out. Yeah. Right. Other people have said there's no God. That's not a new thought. Right. What Nietzsche says is what you don't understand is giving up on God is not just giving up on metaphysics about a certain person existing up there in the heavens. It's God was a whole basis of our values, all our so-called Judeo-Christian values, including our very valuing of truth, because truth, right. after all, is valuable because it's God's word. So he says... The, the weird thing is, we've given, a lot of us have given up on God, but we keep all the morality that was based on God. But when God falls, all that morality has to come into question too. He said, that's what hasn't happened. And that's why his audience, who are laughing at him, are so shocked at the end. And so Nietzsche is the one who's trying to bring to us the true meaning of the death of God. Okay, so would you say that uh, Nietzsche's basic philosophical project is to try and uh, derive a morality that is... Uh, Without God, uh, what you might call it, what people call a relativistic or subjective set of morals. I won't say relativistic, but you're absolutely right. He often talks about his project as the reevaluation of all values. Right. Because he says, look, those values can no longer an- animate us. We need new values. So you're mm-hmm. right. That's his project. He doesn't tell you what those new values are, and he's cagey about his own values. But he does say it's a project that each of us have to face. And when he says, what's going to happen when we really understand the death of God? Is we say there is no external basis for the values. He says what most of us will do is we'll fall into what he calls nihilism, mm-hmm. which is a kind of disorientation where we say, oh, there are no ultimate values. Right. And then there's this open space for people maybe long time in the future, because he said nihilism, that's the history of Europe for the next 200 years. Right. It's incredibly prescient. Maybe in the future then people can construct new positive values. Yeah, but this, this word nihilism, it's got very sort of negative and, and very sort of uh, slothful connotations, if you like. It's, oh, I don't believe that there's any value or purpose in anything, therefore I'm not going to bother doing anything. But that was, um, you know... The, Absolutely the opposite of Nietzsche's reaction to the whole uh, idea of the death of God, wasn't it? Nietzsche is not a proponent of nihilism. Right. He's a diagnostician. It's, it's not like he's for nihilism. He says nihilism is inevitable. It's, he's a psychologist and he's predicting what our minds are going to go through when we right. really appreciate the death of God. And no, he was absolutely, you're absolutely right, he was absolutely against nihilism. He said that's what weak people will fall into. And in fact, there are a lot of postmodernists who kind of approve Nietzsche as if approve of him as the father of nihilism. And they've got it completely wrong. Postmodernism, where you say, oh, there are all these different 
different narratives and none of them have any authority, uh-huh. is exactly what Nietzsche would predicted weak people will do. He said, oh, there is no master morality like uh, the morality of Christianity or the morality of communism or socialism or utilitarianism, so we can just have different competing voices. That's exactly what postmodernism says. He says, that's what weak people do. Remember in that passage he said, mm-hmm. we must become gods to be worthy of the deed? Right. What is God? That is someone who can provide their own master narrative. So he was dead against nihilism, but yeah. he predicted it as Europe's future. Well, he, he sort of... Doesn't he... Uh, I mean, maybe we want to talk about a bit of his positive responses to the death of God in terms of what he says that therefore your respo- one's response should be. Um, I mean, for instance, he has a doctrine of the will to power. I mean, what does that mean? Well, let me say something about the first point you raised, the positive response. Actually, in a follow-up, because that's not Nietzsche who says that. That's a madman, and it's very telling. I I thought the madman was representing Nietzsche in that book. No, because in the latter section of that book, he says, actually, from some of us, for us free spirits, meaning himself, we see the death of God as opening up new possibilities. We see it as something positive, because now we can write our own morals, if you like, our own legislation. And sorry, the second part of your question was... Well, I just to go into that, what these morals were, his, oh, his moral to seems to be that, uh, therefore, my moral value is that I will things to happen, and that creates value by my willing. Would, is that a fair assessment of what he says? Um, there is something to that. And, you know, Nietzsche is often uh, cited as a precursor of existentialism. And one way he's like existentialists is this. He says he has a kind of a jargon, if you like, of authenticity where he puts it upon each of his readers or his select readers because he's an incredible leader. And he said, I'm not – he said – there are very few ears attuned to my message, but it's up to them to create their own values. Uh-huh. By the way, that does not mean relativism. It's just that he wa- didn't want to be a legislator for all values. Sorry, he didn't let, me, think- let me stop you. If we all create our own moral values, in what sense is it not true that values are relative to each individual? Because... I, as creator of my own values, don't have to acknowledge that and other people are free to create their right, values. Exactly. I can think these are the values that everyone should have, right? right? Okay. But it's, it's, it's still, it's each of us to decide that. Um, and also, he did think, he, he was incredibly condescending. He said, <laughs> let, the, um, let, the values of, let the values of the majority rule in the majority. Uh-huh. Like, that's all they're good for. In fact, he, a lot of people think he wanted to kill Christianity. Yeah. It's not true. He said Christianity brings incredible uh, solace to a lot of people, people he condescendingly thought of were rather weak and pathetic. Leave and it said, to the slaves, yeah? Yeah. Leave it to the ordinary people to keep the Christian values. What he didn't want is he didn't want everyone to, um, to, to be mastered by these values and dictated to these values because he thought they were inhibiting to certain kind of people. So how, how does one... If one wants to uh, reject standard morality, how does one go about finding what values one wants to uh, promote? Well, famously, Zarathustra, Nietzsche's mouthpiece, said... That was a a book, and the the opening track was also Sprach Zarathustra, which is the name of the book we're talking about. Thus spake Zarathustra. But he has his mouthpiece, Zarathustra, say, here is my way, where is yours? Uh He says, I do not seek disciples. So he did think of it as an individualistic project um, to to, to come up with with one's own values. But he clearly had his own values. Uh Like, he particularly... 
it, it helps to think of an early Nietzsche and a later Nietzsche. Well, I guess I, I want to know, though, uh, what criteria does he say is the criteria for choosing values? Does he not give any? He doesn't give a criteria no? for choosing values. I mean, sometimes he alludes to will to power, he alludes to health, uh-huh. but those are just markers of the way of forwarding his own values. He doesn't give any strong arguments about what, why these count as genuine grounding for right. values. He just asserts things vigorously, and that's, that's, ca- and that's his method He's of very cagey. Uh-huh. I, look, there is a history behind it. There's a romantic project that he was part of, and that's his early life, uh-huh. where the romantic said, look, we don't have a genuine culture. A lot of German romantics of the um, late 18th century, early 19th century said, we Germans don't have a genuine culture, as opposed to the ancient Greeks who right. did, and we need to get a new culture. Mm-hmm. And so you might think of the early Nietzsche as a proponent of a need for a new kind of high culture. Because Nietzsche was incredibly prescient. That's why he's so anti-democratic. OK, let me just uh, say here that Nietzsche was writing at the end of the 19th century. Uh, Zarathustra, for instance, I think was 1888, something like 1884, something Sounds like that. Sounds good to me. But, uh, yeah, so that's the sort of a- a- area we're talking about here. So, But he was... Nietzsche was extremely prescient. I'm not saying he saw Big Brother coming, but he said, look... There's a mob culture coming. There's an enfranchisement through economic franchisement and political franchisement. And what that could uh, come with is a certain kind of tendency to the lowest common denominator, a mediocritization of society. Same kind of thing that John Stuart Mill was worrying about in the Tocqueville. And so he was very, very worried that high culture is going to be swallowed up by a a culture of mediocrity of the lowest common denominator. Yeah, but what... Why Why should I believe that this uh, morality of will to power and whoever creates their own values is right, whereas somebody who doesn't do that is wrong? Yeah, right and wrong is a, a difficult yeah, co- concept with, evil, with, okay. with morality, um, especially as it's not clear that Nietzsche was an objectivist or a, a realist about values. He often seems to say values are something we project onto the world. Right. So often he's read as a naturalist who thinks, look, there's a natural world and that's kind of colourless, as in without values, and values are always a human projection. But your question still arises, why project this way rather than that way? And one of his chief concerns, and it's very odd to us, uh, it, it rings strange to our ears, he says, we moderns are obsessed with suffering. It's like what we want is a life that eliminates suffering. Sounds very humane to us. But actually Nietzsche thought suffering is actually part of life. That's just a descriptive claim. But he also thought we need suffering because he said a really great life involves overcoming great challenges. And anything that's a great challenge will naturally involve suffering. Okay. I think we're going to take a a break for a track here. I think we'll probably play another Leonard Cohen, what the hell, and then take this waltz it's going to be, I think. If we... Any second now. Now in Vienna There's ten pretty women There's a shoulder where death comes to cry There's a lobby with 900 windows There's a tree where the doves go to die There's a piece that was torn from the morning And it hangs in the gallery of frost 
this waltz, take this waltz, take this waltz with the clamp on its jaws. about the thoughts of Friedrich Nietzsche. I've got with me Ken Geems from Birkbeck, and he's a Nietzsche scholar. So you you were saying that Nietzsche wants to affirm suffering in his view of life. Uh, this is a somewhat different to the modern take on the meaning of life, I suppose. What, in what sense is he different from the way we think about happiness and, and the goals of life? Well, and I, why? He points to a confusion in our conception of happiness. Right. There's a common conception of happiness, that is, happiness is contentness, feeling good about oneself, absence of suffering. But there's also another notion of happiness, less familiar to us, more familiar to the Greeks, especially to Aristotle, Aristotle and his followers, that is, happiness is realising your talents. Right. And Nietzsche is more on the old camp. That so, is, happiness is not how you feel. It's not a contentment. It's not a feeling of wobbling in the stomach. Happiness involves... Realising your talents, realising your talents often involves taking very serious challenges and those challenges might bring great unhappiness in their train. It's not that he's for suffering, he just says suffering is inevitable if you're going to be serious about the project of realising your sure. talents. I think he had a conception of the Germany that he was living in at um, 19th century uh, as being a bit decadent. Would that have to do with this, that uh, 
instead of being decadent, materialistic Germans, I want you to achieve greatness in your acts. Very much so. Yeah. He call, he, what he called it was a very, again, condescendingly, he called it herd happiness. Uh-huh. He said, we've become with herd happiness, the absence of suffering, mere contentedness. And he said, no, you shouldn't be content. You should always be striving, as you might suggest uh, expressing your will to power, looking for great challenges and possibly enduring suffering in order to overcome those challenges. Okay, this, I mean, we've been sort of talking around it, but the, the whole thing brings in Nietzsche's, a uh, couple of Nietzsche's other doctrines, which is the Ubermensch and also the, uh, the idea of eternal recurrence. Uh, what does he mean by Ubermensch, which literally translated means Superman or, or Overman, in fact, yeah. the greater man? What, what do you think Nietzsche means by that? It's a tricky uh, topic, and he didn't write that much about the Ubermensch, um, and it's mainly in this book, Zarathustra. But basically, he wants us always to aim beyond ourselves. And Uh it's quite nice that he says very little about what the Ubermensch is as an end result. Really, he's interested not in the result of the Ubermensch, but the struggle to get there. It's like, we've struggled to get beyond Judeo-Christian values, and we should struggle to get beyond ourselves. He actually says all great things bring about their own self-overcoming. In fact, he thinks it's a mark of his respect for Christianity that he wants to bring about its end. Its uh-huh. time has come. Well, the Ubermensch is mainly there as something for us to strive, to get beyond our human, all-too-human values. Sure. I mean, one problem that occurs to me about this Ubermensch uh, doctrine is if it was taken up as a uni- universal doctrine, you'd just get constant... Com- high competitiveness, maybe war between individuals, wouldn't you? If everybody was trying to be greater than everybody else, what would be the result for society? Not so much greater than everyone else, greater than themselves. Uh You know, Nietzsche... He was a genius, and he realised he could be read and misread in various ways. And, you know, he was misread famously in the 20th century by Nazi appropriators. And the guy was such a genius. He said, horrible things will be done in my name. But he just didn't care. And when he talked about the Ubermensch, that's one of those. He could think, yeah, this man who doesn't care about others and rough rides over everyone. But really what he meant was overcoming yourself, right. overcoming your own weaknesses. It was about a certain self-creation that he so was So it doesn't have in. to be selfish. It can be altruistic in... In, in nature, this ubermensch behaviour? Well, altruistic, I don't know about that, but it's not aggressive towards others. Uh-huh. It's more about controlling and overcoming yourself. Right. In a way, it's altruistic because he thinks what's good for others is for us to have great individuals because they're the ones who drive creation, drive society, okay. drive culture. That's it. And I also want to bring in this doctrine of eternal recurrence, which is really what it says. Uh, but... What was special about the idea that time keeps repeating itself to Nietzsche? Okay, the the modern consensus consensus among scholars today is he didn't really think that time would repeat itself. The best way to think of it is this. Nietzsche, he said of himself, first and foremost, I am dynamite. He's good at destroying things, but he wanted to put something in its place. He wanted to have an ideal of what it is to affirm life. He's destroyed all these Christian values or helped bring about their obsolescence. Now he's looking for positive values. He was not too great at that. Eternal recurrence is one of his attempts. So here's the idea. The idea is, after Christianity, we don't know what it would be to affirm life. Well, here's my idea. It's a test. You affirm life if you're willing to have the same life over and over and over again, what could be a bigger commitment to this life? So it's not that he really thought time was cyclical and going to repeat itself, but he said, this is a test to see if you affirm life. You affirm life if you're willing to take every detail of your life, in fact, of the whole history of the world, and have it repeat over and over again. Yeah, but is there anybody that thinks like that? I mean, sure, 
in every life there's things that one regrets and wishes one had done, for instance, but nobody thinks, oh, the life is so great, I wish it was exactly the same right. as it is forever, you know. Like, do I need a stub toe I had this morning? Yeah. Why do I have to affirm that? But he would have been able to see that, wouldn't he? Okay, there's a question, and scholars get very caught up in this, and there's a fairly turgid literature on this, uh, but I, I think the real point is he's just trying to point to someone who is so exuberant that it, without even thinking it through, he said, I love life so much, I want it again and again and again. Yeah. So it's, the idea is he wants to give us an, a picture of somebody, somebody who is totally in love with life. But uh-huh. once you start pressing it, do you really want that stub toe? I don't think it holds much water. Maybe the mistake is mine in trying to approach Nietzsche in a sort of analytical way, where he's tries to... He's, Expresses himself very emotionally, doesn't he? And exactly his, right. Uh, modus operandi. Okay. Um, so Zarathustra was his uh, was his mouthpiece of the overcoming man. Can you tell me a bit about Zarathustra? Yeah, it's very hard. It's a very difficult book to read. It's it's very bombastic. And mm-hmm. my wife, who is Swiss, and German is her native language, tells me, and I believe it too from my reading, it's worse in German than it is in English. Um, you know, thus spake Zarathustra every 20 lines or so. Um, <laughs> but really, it's... It's his picture of an autonomous self-creator. It's the person Nietzsche couldn't be. Nietzsche knew he was this great destructive force, but he wanted to have a picture of someone who really affirmed everything. Okay, that's his picture. Let me just uh, clarify that for the listeners. Uh, He wrote a book called Alistair's Brag Zarathustra, which is uh, Thus Spake Zarathustra, Zarathustra being uh, his representation of Zoroaster, the famous uh, Persian prophet, original Persian prophet of... um, uh, dual existence between good and e- evil, but in um, Nietzsche's book, uh, he represents the prophet as basically putting forward Nietzschean doctrines in a in a series of like sayings and proverbs and things like that. So this is what we're talking about now. Yeah. So, um, is there anything you like about this book, Zarathustra? Well, I have a sad thing to report here. I, I don't think I'm a reader for Zarathustra. Right, okay. and, uh, but I'll say why, because it's pretty damn interesting. Right. Um, and it's interesting, most of us Nietzsche scholars are not that keen on that book. And yet Nietzsche said, this is my main book. If you don't read Zarathustra, you don't get me. Well, I, I loved Zarathustra. I thought it was very easy to read, but you seem to think the opposite. Well, well maybe you're the audience he's <laughs> intending for. Because Nietzsche actually had a very low opinion of university professors. Right. He thought, we scholars are all good in our little place, but we're not ends in ourselves. What he wanted to do was inspire really creative individuals, and he didn't think university professors were particularly creative. Right. And the funny thing is... The people who really appreciate Zarathustra are people like Hermann Hesse, Thomas Mann, you know, R- Rilke. Me. <laughs> there you go. And so those are... He, what Nietzsche wanted to do, he didn't want to inspire university professors, he wanted to inspire geniuses. And that was the book they all point to. Yeah. So in some sense that book was extremely successful, just not with us scholars. So what, why don't you like it then? Or why does it come really low on the pecking order of Nietzsche-ness? I just find it extremely heavy-handed, very bombastic. Oh, that's not unlike Nietzsche, though. He's always like that. Yeah, I find him a bit more humorous in other places. I mean, a great reader is Eke Homo, which has wonderful chapters like why I am so clever, why I write such good books. But this is unleavened um, heaviness, German heaviness, Uh, we might say. Okay, maybe it's a bit late in the day to ask you this, but what what do you find particularly interesting in Nietzsche's ideas? Look, I really find this idea of... What we need as replacement values, given the death of certain old values, a really, really important question. Mm-hmm. I find really important his question about 
what our ends should be and what would be a revival of culture, in particular high culture, and also this question of the place of suffering in our life. What is a good life? That, you know, if, if you think what philosophy is about is metaphysics or epistemology, my advice is keep the hell clear from Nietzsche. But right. if you think of those old perennial questions, what is a good life, that obviously Plato and Aristotle and the ancients were talking about, Nietzsche is right up that alley, and he asked it in a way that is very pertinent to us moderns who have kind of ceased believing in so many things. Okay. But uh, do you agree with his conclusions about... Uh what to do as a result of uh, the need for moral creating your own values? I mean, are they your values? I find myself very influenced by Nietzsche. I'm kind of also hurt by him because he's such an elitist and he has such a high grade. I know uh-huh. I don't make that grade by his high values. But, look, there are parts of him that are hard to take, his anti-democratic voice, his extreme elitism, but I am very much moved by his idea of happiness, that happiness is realising one's talent. And yeah. I'm very moved by his idea that we've got a very debased conception of happiness as kind of a vibrating in the stomach, a feeling of contentment. I think life should involve great challenges, and he really puts that to us. But as you say, the problem with that point of view is it is quite elitist. I mean, how many people actually get a chance to realise their talents in the world? I mean, only 1% of people, perhaps, so... And that's who Nietzsche cared to write to. Uh-huh. He said, he said, you know, um, he often wondered, do I have any readers? And he often thought my books, well, he said a book for well, everyone and a book for no one, he described. As well, he didn't have any readers in his lifetime, really, did he? He sold you until yeah. the end of his life, really. He his last couple of books he had to pay to be published. Yeah. And yet he, he's, he's so clever. He said some are born posthumously yeah. about himself. He knew he would have readers. And boy, was he right. Okay. Uh, I think we'll go on to another track here, which is going to be V2 Schneider by David Bowie. It's very quiet to start with. Thank you. 
Hi, this is Grant Bartley. You're listening to the Philosophy Now radio show on Resonance, and um, we're doing the thoughts of Friedrich Nietzsche, famous uh, German anti-Christian philosopher from uh, the end of the 19th century. I have with me Ken Gings from Birkbeck, and he's got a particular interest in Nietzsche. So, um, Ken, oh... What do you think Nietzsche's real criticism of Christianity was? I mean, I don't think it was that uh, they believed in God. I think it's something to do with the morality, really, wasn't it? Well, he has a couple of criticisms. Um, He actually respects Christianity. He actually says Christianity helped a lot of people ward off suicidal nihilism. Okay. Because life is very hard, and it was very hard in primitive times. Think about it. And what he says is, Humans, it's not suffering that's humans' problem, it's the meaninglessness of life that is our, hum, our problem. In fact, he said, yeah. we'll, we'll put up with any suffering as long as we find meaning. Sure. Said, Christianity did a wonderful job of providing meaning, but he says Christianity can no longer fulfil that job for us. Because nobody, not many people believe in God particularly. One, it's because we don't believe, but also, see, Christianity wasn't just a set of beliefs, it animated all of life. And in the modern world, it's very hard for Christ- Christian belief and Christian practices to animate all our life. I mean, I was, I was just reading in a Beyond Good and Evil that he thinks there's no, uh, nothing you can say about life which isn't already has a set of values presupposed in it. So You're absolutely right. Like some people say, oh, Nietzsche thinks we could uh, live without values, for mm-hmm. instance. And Nietzsche thinks that's impossible because every action of, our, of ours involves values. Like the very fact that I'm sitting here shows I value doing this program rather than, say, going out and eating a pizza. Yeah. So there's no such thing as life without values. In fact, Nietzsche says he has this psychology, what we call a drive psychology, says kind of prefiguring Freud, we're nothing but a series of drives. My hunger drives uh, values food. Maybe my ambition values giving a good radio address, whatever. We've got all these yeah. conflicting drives. So we always have values. The question is, what are ultimate values? Because ultimate values give meaning to all of existence. And that's what Christianity did. You know, even after the death of Christianity, there are these men he calls the last men, and they still have values. They might value their family or their good career, but they don't have ultimate values. And that's why he respects Christianity. It gave us ultimate values, but those ultimate values no longer animate us. So what's Nietzsche's ultimate value then? Well, I suspect if he has an ultimate value, often he talks about things like health or life, but I think his real value is culture and creativity. Uh, creativity. But he's pretty, yeah. he's pretty cagey about stating what his ultimate values are. Yeah, because that would sort of you know, close off the discussion, I think. Absolutely I mean, right. Mentioning creativity, he, he did have a doctrine of... Um, the distinction between the Apollonian and the Dionysian spirit, these being two gods. Apollo was the god of light and maybe reason, you might say, and Dionysus, who's equated with Bacchus, is the god of uh, debauched celebration and possibly music and stuff like this. So can you tell us a little, little bit about that in, in relation to what Nietzsche values? I, yes, I, th- those were terms Apollonian Dionysian he used in his early work, The Birth of Tragedy, his uh-huh. first published book. And when you read the book, you think, oh, he's, he's saying the problem is the Apollonian, that is, we value reason so much, we value rationality, and we've repressed this other part of ourselves. It's, it's like Freud's distinction between the ego, the conscious ego, and the id, the sexual. And that's very much the Dionysian mm-hmm. lines up on the sexual and the, um, the Apollonian um, lines up with the ego and reason. Right. But whenever Nietzsche has an opposition, it's really important to see he's never really for one thing rather than the other. Okay. What he's really saying is, look, 
The Apollonian, that is reason, that is the ego, doesn't need a champion because it's one. Socrates won. He thinks Socrates is a great champion of reason. We should be nothing yeah. but reasoners. So he champions the other one, not because it's the right one. It's the one who needs a champion. He thinks yeah. health is a balance between these the forces. <laughs> and he... See, that his, he claims later on, when he, at, in his early works, he, he fingers Socrates as the enemy. Later on, it's Christianity. Yeah. But what they have in common, he says, is they both involve a severe, and this prefigures Freud, a severe repression of that kind of affective, emotional, sexual part of ourselves, yeah. the libido in Freud's term. He says, you know, Socrates does it, says, look, you should be nothing but reason. Yeah. Right. Well, Christianity tells us, look, your aggressive sexual side is almost an affront to God, mm-hmm. so it needs to be repressed. I mean, I think it's what they call the flesh, isn't it? So the flesh is not is spirit one of the over enemies the flesh. of the spirit. Isn't yes, it? that's right. The spirit is one, and the flesh has been grounded, so to speak. And he wants to liberate the flesh to a certain degree, not because it yeah. should triumph, but health involves a balance. Right. Nietzsche's notion of health is not one thing triumphing over another; it's achieving a balance. And he thinks He's very Aristotelian in a lot of ways, isn't he? You're absolutely right. Like that very point I made about happiness is an Aristotelian point. He thinks happiness involves a balance, involves uh, realising your talents, and a balance is needed for that. You're right. That's pure Aristotle. Mm -hmm. Okay. so uh, on Apollo and Dionysus, I think he, he, to me, seems to champion Dionysus rather than Apollo. He does in the book, but there's a reason. I mean, Nietzsche is one of the most rhetorical philosophers you've ever Uh come across. Most philosophers, they say X because they they think X is the truth. Nietzsche, it's not that he's against the truth and he does believe in the truth, but he'll often say say something because he's got a certain rhetorical intent. So he'll champion Dionysus because, as I said, it's the one that's losing. And it's the one that needs a champion. So, but the considered position, and if you read the book carefully, that's the birth of tragedy. You realize it's not really that Dionysus is the one who should be a victor. It's just that we need to redress that imbalance. Okay. Um, so, um, I want to ask you a bit more, few more, couple of more personal questions here. How far do you personally sympathise with Nietzsche's doctrines? Um, I find Nietzsche extremely compelling as a psychologist. Uh And Nietzsche said, he who reads me well reads me first and foremost as a psychologist. Okay, I should uh, say for the listeners that um, Ken teaches also Freud and and Nietzsche uh, together. Do you teach them? I sometimes teach them together. I once gave a course on Nietzsche and Freud. um, And I used to joke that what's good in in Freud is twice as good in Nietzsche. Uh Because Freud had this scientism, this veneer of scientism for salesman purposes. And Nietzsche Uh never had any of that veneer. He was out and out willing to be a psychologist in a humanist fashion, not pretending it's a science. And Nietzsche did a certain kind of depth psychology prefiguring Freud. Where Freud's one of my, Freud's Let me just set the timescale here. Uh, Nietzsche was writing like in the 1880s and he, he, he stopped writing about 1890, whereas Freud's first book, I think you said it was 1895, is that yeah, right? I think that's, so that's uh, the sort of... They sort of uh, Nietzsche comes a little before Freud, but not significantly. Studies in Hysteria was his yeah. first book, which I think was 1895. That's Freud's book. Um, but the, the depth psychology that Nietzsche wants to um, introduce to us is the idea that there's a part of us. Uh-huh. There's a prefiguring in this in, in Schopenhauer. He says, because philosophy says, look, all I am is a conscious mind. And Schopenhauer... Nietzsche and Freud are the one who really put on the map the idea that a lot of, of what we are is not even accessible to consciousness. It's beneath us. It's these things, Schopenhauer called it the will, uh, 
um, Freud called it the id, Nietzsche calls it the drives. Mm -hmm. And these drives aren't available to us. And part of what has happened in civilization, this is a story Freud tells in his famous book Civilization and its Discontents, oh. but it's prefigured mm -hmm. by Nietzsche, is society... Please see the podcast uh, for that, listeners. That society has taught us to repress those drives. Society has taught... The very demands of civilization, says Freud, living amongst each other, means repressing some of our aggressive drives, our sexual drives. Mm -hmm. Well, Nietzsche says... Not only have we repressed those drives, but we've moralized that repression. Right. That's what Christianity does. I just want to explain what the difference is. See, it's, yeah, one thing to, it's one thing to push down a drive to say, look, it's not prudential to me, for me to act on this aggressive drive because if I do, society will sanction. That would be um, uh, pushing down a, a, a drive out of kind of rational self-interest. But what Christianity does is it says... Someone who does the first thing can say, look, I've got this drive, but it's not rational for me to act on it. But Christianity says, no, no, it's not that uh, you need to, for prudential purposes, suppress this drive. You are bad for having this very drive. <clears throat> so you end up feeling so guilty about the drive that you lie yourself out of it. That's what Christianity has done. It has made us disown part of ourselves, our own I'm aggressive not, nature. I'm not sure Christianity was supposed to be like that. It, maybe institutionally it's turned out to be promoting of guilt, but I'm sure you know J Jesus wouldn't have been in like that. But anyway. Nietzsche had a wonderful thing to say uh -huh. about Jesus. He said there was only one Christian. And he died on the cross. Right. He thinks Jesus was a naive. And Jesus actually was the only Christian for Nietzsche. And he thinks Paul is the one who instituted the religion of guilt. So, so Nietzsche actually liked Jesus. Is that, or was that going too far? He said he died. He admired him. And he said he died too young. And he would have wised up had he right. lived a bit longer. Yeah. But he really thinks... And as you say, there's a doctrine of Christ and there's what Christianity has become. Right. And he says what Christianity has become is a machine to make us disown part of ourselves. So that Nietzsche actually thinks we're split off. There's part of ourselves we don't even acknowledge. And there's a wonderful, beautiful phrase called strangers to ourselves. Right. It says we've become strangers to ourselves because Christianity has forced us to disown part of ourselves. So ultimately, Christianity is bad for Nietzsche because it's a ideology which rejects life. Is that a fair thing? Very point? much so. Yeah. The funniest thing is, he said, it rejects life and that helped us wed ourselves to life because it gave a meaning to life but it gave a meaning to life that is our life is here to suffer to you know earn us earn our wages in god's eyes mm -hmm. but it, it promoted what he thinks is of a very low level of life that is it taught us to suppress our drives in order to gain god acceptance but that be makes happy a low with level very little in other yeah. words be you know. meek be humble turn the other cheek but then turn you know turning it around to be a bit critical of nature i think is a Okay, we want the the the, mar the the master race, the Ubermensch. I mean, if you take a morality that what is morally good is becoming great, then it seems to me that that means that what you do to other people isn't part of the picture. So the consequences of your actions aren't really part of the equation of calculating whether something's good or bad, which means it's open to, you're a great man, you can do what you like, and this is morality, and, you know, there's no other way of uh, thinking about it. There's no defence of... As I mentioned before, Nietzsche said, horrible things will be done in my name. And he was literally right. There are very famous Nietzsche murder cases. The most famous one that people know about is Lo Leopold and Loeb. People, young boys read Nietzsche and think, I'm going to prove I'm a, a, um, a ubermensch by saying I'm not constrained by conventional morality and they end up murdering X. Sure, sure but the question is, how can having foreseeing that that was a consequence of his actions and how could he then sort of still think that he's talking about morality or good behaviour or something like this? 
I think this is, yeah, Nietzsche in some sense is ultimately irresponsible. Right. He knew idiots would misuse him, well, not necessarily idiots, but he knew he could be misused and he didn't care about that. And that is deeply, deeply irresponsible on his part. What he did care about is how the really talented would react. Mm-hmm. And as I've mentioned before, he was damn right about how they would react. A lot of brilliant people have been inspired by Nietzsche. And yeah. so in that sense, by his own lights, He's a success story. And he, as I say, he just didn't care what the mob would do with it. Okay, uh, fine. Um, can I ask you what is your assessment of Nietzsche and his place in history and the impact of, of his uh, writing on, uh, say, the 20th century going into the 21st century? Well, That's in some a big sense, question, isn't it? He is the philosopher of, of the 20th century because he addresses this fundamental question of what do we do when previous values no longer have a grip on us. And he was the one who raised the questions of how are we going to create new values. And that is a project that is still ongoing for us today, and no one has really answered it. I'm not saying he answered it, but he was the one who really opened us up to the question. I would also like Uh to say he was a brilliant psychologist, and I haven't had enough time to elaborate on that. We'll say a bit if you like. We've got a few minutes. Well, I, I do think that, as I say, what's good in Freud is twice as good in Nietzsche, that Nietzsche tells us this story about how we don't have a unity. See, once you give up on the soul, you think, what makes me, me? What is it to be a person? Uh-huh. And Nietzsche says, in fact, most of us aren't person. We're just a bundle of drives going in all different directions. Uh-huh. Like, I tell my own story. There's part of me that wants to be a good Nietzsche scholar. There's part of me that wants to own a 61-inch flat-screen TV. What the hell have they got to do with each other? And what Nietzsche wants well, to tell us... You can watch Nietzsche DVDs. There aren't too many of those. No. Um, but what Nietzsche wants to tell us is he says, look, you need to get an order among your drives. Uh-huh. That there are these rare individuals like, well, Beethoven's on the list, Goethe's always on the list, Wagner's on it, then off it. Nietzsche's always on the list, yeah. who have a kind of a master drive that orders all their other drives, makes them coherent uh-huh. in a way, the way that perhaps you and I aren't coherent, just a jumble of drives. And that's the self-overcoming that he really right, cares just a about. Sort of in- intellectual integrity or that's right. emotional integrity as well. Well, they come together for yeah. nature. There's no differences there, really. Okay, so uh, do you think that people are still going to be interested in Nietzsche in 100 years' time? Most philosophers, philosophers like Hume and Kant, you wonder how they're going to ever survive without philosophy professors. Nietzsche will survive by himself because he's a brilliant writer. People just pick up these books, as much as they pick up books at all, and read them. In fact, one of the troubles is when you read the secondary literature, it pales into nothingness compared to the power of the original. Think of that God God is Dead passage Mm -hmm. I just read in the beginning of the program. Nietzsche will survive without us. Okay, Ultimately, one loves one's desires and not that which is desired. For instance, that's a, that's a quote I've got straight in front of me and from Beyond Good and Evil. Um, so he's just a very easy person to um, quote, isn't he? He's very quotable, very, very readable, and sometimes quite funny, too, and very powerful images. He, he's just a very, very strong, brilliant writer. And that's why, well, that's why he'll survive, I mean, as long as people read books. Okay, look, I, I, I guess I want to finally ask you, was he correct in his uh, doctrines, do you think? 
Yeah, it's hard to say what those doctrines were. I think he was very correct in some of his, or very interesting in some of his psychological speculations. I have to say interesting because I don't know how to test psychological speculations, Mm -hmm. putting on my hat here as a philosopher of science. But I think he was had very interesting speculations and he opened up a lot of questions and he opened up questions that I wish more philosophers would try to answer. For instance? The big questions, Uh questions that, you know, Philosophers have become so technical with probability functions and stuff like that. Yeah. I'm speaking, very, referring to myself. Can be very uh, they don't want to ask the big questions. Yeah. And no, Nietzsche I was agree. brave That's enough to ask the big questions. Yeah, like, well, why are we here? Why do we believe what we believe? And what is our ultimate motivation? And what our that. values should be. Okay. And, and he never provided a systematic response to that, only no, a response. Yeah. Because he wanted us to provide our own answers. Okay, uh, I think we're going to stop there. That's a good place to stop. I just want to uh, plug various things. Uh, If you want to respond to anything you hear, you can go to the Philosophy Now forum and make a post there. That's uh, philosophynow.org on the forum. I've also got my books for sale, uh, The Meta Revolution and Love, Solitude and Destruction. Please buy them. It will make a huge difference to my life. And uh, we've also got... um, Sorry, Philosophy Now have also got an all-day party on the 18th of... December, doing various philosophical things, and it's free to anybody who wants to go, and it's between 11 and 8 in Conway Hall, which is in Red Lion Square in um, Holborn. Uh, Anything you want to plug? Uh, The nearest thing I'll come to a plug is on February the 10th, uh, 2012 at the Institute of Philosophy, but check the date because it may change, there will be a conference on Freud and Nietzsche on repression and sublimation. Okay. So if you're interested in those topics, that yes. might be something for you to if come to. If you've got to. something you want to repress or sublimate, that's the place to go, obviously. All right. Um, okay. I hope you enjoyed today's discussion. We'll see you next week.